Hey, good morning, everybody, and uh, happy Easter. Uh, so, as Dad said, we're uh, heading into Psalms, and um, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be in uh, on the 16th Psalm, and then we're going to uh, head over to Acts chapter 2, um, beginning with verse... I thought I had a bookmark here. Begin with verse 22. Acts chapter 2, as many of you know, was, contains the um, uh, sermon of, of Peter uh, right after uh, the Holy Spirit has descended upon uh, Jesus' uh, closest followers there uh, in that upper room. And remember that all of Jerusalem was still uh, buzzing about uh, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, no doubt. Uh, there had been an earthquake. Uh, everybody would have paid notice of that. Uh, people who had been in the ground were no longer in the ground. Uh, graves were disrupted all over the place, not just Jesus. Uh, a lot had been happening, and there were, depending on who you look at, between 100 and 200,000 travelers uh, there in Jerusalem. Uh, there was a lot going on, and Jesus gives, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Peter gives uh, the first Easter sermon, you might say, and that's in chapter 2. In his text, he uses Psalm 16. So that's where we're going to start today because the people that he was speaking to really knew their psalms and they especially knew the psalms of David of which Psalm 16 is uh, one of the more um, famous uh, to them and to us. I'm going to, uh, I I usually teach out of the ESV, but uh, I'm going to do it out of the New American just to read it. It says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their name upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. This psalm starts off as if it is going to be a lament. Um, Very often in psalms there were um, uh, pleas for either protection or uh, that things weren't going well for David. And that's, you kind of get that start there. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge refuge in verse 1, but it quickly changes to just a great uh, announcement, a great poem, of course, uh, and what does it mean to really trust the Lord and all the benefits that, uh, as as David is reflecting on his relationship with the Lord, uh, he just finds just so much contentment in this, and, and this psalm is an expression of that. So let's go through it. You can look at it in uh, couplets, um, two verses at a time until we get to the last 
three, which hang together. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Uh, he is content. David is content. He's content because he's able to rely on the Lord. It says, I take refuge in you. We know that things weren't always good for David. He was often um, uh, on the the wrong side of the law, so to speak. Sometimes we know from his encounters with Saul. Um, And if you're a king, things are never great uh, all at once. Um, He says, I take refuge in you. And then he goes on in verses three and four. This is interesting. It says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now, this one kind of sounds a little weird, but the point is he is taking delight in naming himself among those who would be God-honoring people. He is, it says, the, those, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. These are the people that are known for following God. He wants to be with them. He wants to consider himself one of those. Conversely, he says, those who run after another God have nothing to do with. He says, I will not, these drink offerings of blood, this is a pagan thing where maybe they were drinking blood. It's pretty nasty. Uh, he said, I'm not going to do that, nor I'm, I'm not even going to speak of them. He is going to dissociate himself from this. So part of his devotion to the Lord involves an awareness of his own standing. It's an awareness of his own reputation. It's an awareness of, the spiritual condition of others, right? And it's him making a conscious choice. I'm going to associate with this group. I'm going to disassociate with this group. Now, Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians when he says, um, uh, when he's talking about church discipline and, and kicking out this, this uh, person who has his father's wife. And um, he says, you know, disassociate from them, but you can't do this with everybody because then you couldn't live in the world. So the point is, uh, if there are believers who are leading people astray or um, people that purport to be believers, you might say, or in David's case, people who are openly uh, following after other idols, uh, you don't want to have your reputation with them. You don't want to hang out with them. You don't want to be known as, as if you're connected with them. And that's the gist of what he's saying here. Verses five and six just talk about how he is delighting in the in the Lord and in, in the blessings that the Lord has given him. It says in verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When there's reference to this chosen portion and you hold my lot and the lines have fallen me, this is the same, this is for those that know Hebrew, which I don't, but I trust the people that I read, Apparently in Hebrew, this is all surveyor language. This is surveyor language. This has to do with in Joshua when uh, the tribes are apportioned their land. And there's a metaphor here where David is saying, you know, the things that you have scoped out for me in my life 
And we know from other Psalms that it wasn't always great. But he's saying, you know, you have blessed me. I'm happy with where you've put me in the course of things. He says, you have given me a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, this is interesting, right? Because we studied 1 Samuel not too long ago, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and some of these pleasant places where he was talking about were in caves in the wilderness where there wasn't much water and he was being chased, you know, as an outlaw. But yet he is so delighting in the Lord as he's writing this psalm. He says, you know, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I've been blessed. I have been blessed. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my whole flesh dwells secure. Where is his security? It's in, it's in God. It's in God. I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. As he... Well, let me back up. I, I actually skipped several verses, didn't I? Seven and eight. Yeah, I'm like, my notes don't make sense. Yes, thank you. I would bless the Lord that gives me counsel. Let's, let's back up. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, and my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. Uh, the point to make here is this counsel in the night. I can't tell you how many people I have that they tell me I'm having trouble sleeping. Is this just some random reason that they're having trouble sleeping, that their bodies just stopped working? No. It's because when things are quiet and the day is settled down and perhaps the only time they have to themselves, then the worries of the day start to creep in, right? They either replay their day, all the coulda, woulda, shouldas that they've encountered, all the things that happened, or they're already getting apprehensive about the next day, right? All that is flooding. That's why they're having trouble sleeping. So this point here where it says, a blessed Lord, he gives me counsel, and in the night my heart instructs me. He is so ingrained with his relationship with God that that's his, that's his recharge time, right? This is when, not the worries of the day, but this is when God has a chance to, to counsel him and to instruct him. So as he reflects on that, he's making good use of that time. Um, very different for some of us. But... My hunch is that if we have exposed ourselves to Scripture over the course of our week, over the course of our day, and if we ask God to use that time to do this, to counsel and instruct us in the night, I think he would be faithful to do that. I really think so. Hey, bud. I I really could relate to that because I had a lot of anxious times in, uh, in my life, and I when I came to Christ later on, a good pastor told me about, you know, now that we have these 
uh, hear, hearing buds and stuff, and you can listen to, um, I used to listen on the, on the recorder, some of the songs, and it would put me to sleep and get my mind off the other sure, stuff that sure. I was dealing with. And today it's, it's much easier, even with the hearing aids, I can turn it into that and won't disturb my ring, but it could be <laughs> two or three o'clock in the morning I wake up. And, and other times he's directed me, he was saying that you should pray for people around the world that you know. You never know what's going on. The same thing uh, when I was praying in Thailand, it was somebody else was hurting in, in, Ma in sure, Massachusetts sure. or wherever else I knew. And I found out weeks, I know, when I got a letter later on, it's, it's just, you never know what, what God's calling you to do with that. Absolutely. Can I quickly piggyback on that? Grand girl number one has dealt with a whole bunch of stuff in her life that she shouldn't have to have dealt with at this point. But I saw a picture this week of her room, a little corner that she set up for study, and the plaque in the middle of it says, give it to God and go to sleep. <laughs> for those of you that didn't hear, he said, give it to God and go to sleep. Verse 9, and this makes more sense now. Therefore, my heart can be glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is, uh, this is interesting here. It says, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, including his body. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. The afterlife... For the Hebrew of the day, for the Jew of the day, um, it, they didn't really believe in bliss by any means. Uh, some might not have even believed that there was going to be much other than maybe some shadowy existence. It certainly wasn't pictured as God being there. Um, it, was, uh, it was not, there was no concept of uh, of a positive afterlife uh, in this day and age. Uh, the only glimpse of that we, we really get in the Old Testament is in Daniel, where he looks ahead to the end of days, um, and, uh, and that hadn't you know, happened yet uh, when David is writing here. So this, was, this is interesting that he would say it, and it's almost like he's saying, my, my relationship with God is so good I just can't picture this being the end of things. Um, there's, it, it just it doesn't make sense to me from what I know of God and from what I know of how he's brought me all this way. This can't be it. This, this can't be it. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This Sheol, that was this other place that they pictured. It wasn't heaven. Or let your Holy One see corruption. And then to bring it all together, he says, you know, you, have, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Uh, just total contentment, right? Total contentment. As that's ringing in your ears, hopefully, turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 22. Peter's already been going on for a bit. Um, they've already, um, the, the people that are gathered there of many language groups have already heard 
the message of the gospel in their own tongue from a bunch of, you know, rednecks from Galilee uh, who shouldn't have known any of this, but yet they're, they're somehow hearing this message in their own language. Um, they've already had to deal with the, the idea that, no, these people aren't drunk. It's the Holy Spirit that Joel told was coming. That's, that's what's happening here. This is a miracle you guys are experiencing. And then he pulls it all together and he says, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, well, let me pause there, as you yourselves know, by this time, everyone knew who Jesus was, right? I mean, just one week before, he was riding into town on a donkey, Hosanna, Hosanna, People are laying down their cloaks on the road. The, you know, that was probably one of the most valuable things that they would have with them on a day-to-day basis. That was, had just happened. They had they'd heard all the ruckus. You know, all the Pharisees and Sadducees wouldn't have been all been out of shape if there hadn't have been something else to go against. So it says... You've heard these signs. God did them in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter didn't have to convince them of anything at this point. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless lawless men. You did this. This is the Jesus who was doing all these things. You did this. Now, this is interesting, though. Look at what we have here. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not only did God not take not only did this not take God by surprise, he foreknew it. He knew everything was going to happen. He this was actually his plan all along. But in this fascinating interplay that we always have between God's sovereignty and and the free will of man, it says, God planned it, but you did it. And if you can figure that out, then you're not looking at it right. You should, it should be confusing, but you should just, in your Western mind, try not to bring those two things together any more than you have to. You can believe them both because they're both true. It's a mystery. We can't figure it out. But it says, God foreknew this, he planned it, but yet you did it. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. These weren't men who knew what God's ultimate plan was and were doing bad things to Jesus so they could be obedient to God. No, (laughs) that's not the way it worked. They were just doing their own badness, but yet somehow God worked it out for good. Look at what God did. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, that is, um, uh, it's, it's almost like birth pangs, okay? So it's like, but instead of birth pangs and a baby coming from the womb, we have the, the death pangs being taken care of and the open grave. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible to, for him to be held by it. Now, at this point... 
Peter is not trying to convince them of the resurrection. Everybody knew of the resurrection already. Jesus had appeared to a lot of people. There was, I mean, gossip spreads fast nowadays, whether it's true or not. The same thing happened then because people were in the marketplace. They weren't, I mean, if it weren't for social media, we wouldn't know anything because we don't rub shoulders with anybody anymore. But they were in the marketplace. They were, you know, they were going daily to, on their chores to get water or to get food. I mean, it was a, they were mingling. So they knew what was going on. They knew he had, he had been raised. He wasn't trying to convince them of that. But what Peter's trying to convince them is that, because they still didn't get this, they, they knew Jesus did miracles. They knew that Jesus was even maybe raised from the dead, or at least they had heard that, that story, and they heard that people were believing it. What still hadn't clicked was that this was Jesus the Messiah. That's the part that he was trying to convince them of. You've heard about Jesus. Y'all, it's, it's more than you think. He didn't just do signs and wonders. He didn't just raise from the dead. This is the Christ. And for his evidence, he takes us back to Psalm 16. Verse 25, it says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, if you if you're, uh, compare these verses, this is verses 9 through 11 of Psalm 16, with what we covered earlier, you'll notice a few minor differences. What's the difference? Well, our modern translations have access to good Hebrew texts, and they translate Psalm 16 from the Hebrew. Most of the people in Peter's day weren't using those. They spoke Aramaic, and they also knew Greek. So most of them were working from the Greek version of the Old Testament, as we call the Septuagint. You guys have heard of this. So the translation of the, they, they know because this fits the Greek translation, that's why it's a little different, but it turns out that change, which was probably somewhat uh, divinely inspired, actually supports Peter's argument even more. It says, I saw the Lord always before me. This is verse 25. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken Therefore, my Lord was glad, my tongue rejoiced, and so forth. For you will not abandon my souls to Hades. Now he's going to explain it. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. The man who said this, who said, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, he died. And his point is, so we know he wasn't talking about himself. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and also knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 
What was his promise? Again, these people knew exactly what they were talking about. Verse 30, I'm sorry, Psalm 132 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. People knew that passage. They knew that David had been promised an heir that would sit on a throne forever. It says they shall sit on your throne. That had not happened yet. That had not been fulfilled yet. So when Peter says Jesus is the answer to the promise of David, well, now it's starting to make sense. Oh, Jesus was descended from David. David was looking forward and talking about the Christ. Okay, back to verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's who David was talking about, Peter says. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we were all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. So if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, if Jesus wasn't God, then you wouldn't be seeing this Holy Spirit that's happening now. It says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yet another psalm. Psalm 110. And again, people knew that when you... It's almost like a, a footnote. When Peter references this part, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, that brought forward everything that that, where, where that psalm came from. And it's Psalm 110. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. This was a messianic psalm. People knew this referred to the Messiah. He was going to rule the nations. He was going to execute judgment across all the nations. That term meant the whole world. So when Peter just says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, there was a, a rule back in the day. It was a rabbinic tradition that you could pull two passages together if they had similar phrasing. So this sitting at the right hand you saw show, shows up in Psalm 110, and it also shows up in Psalm 16 that he has already, Peter has already told you that David was talking about Jesus. So those people are now hearing this. Okay, wait a minute. This Jesus that did all these signs and wonders this Jesus that we crucified, this Jesus that is raised from the dead, you're telling me this was the Jesus that David was talking about in Psalm 16? You're telling me this is the Jesus, this is 
the same person that Psalm 110 was talking about when he said he's going to be the one to execute judgment of all the nations? Are you saying that Jesus is the Christ? And Peter says, that's exactly what I'm saying. Verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If he had had a mic, he would have dropped it right there. (laughs) Because it says, and we won't go much further, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Brothers, what do we do? He wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just a miracle worker who was risen from the dead. He was a miracle worker who was risen from the dead, who was prophesied about David, who was the fulfillment of the prophecy that David made, and he was going to be their Christ to make it all right. And they knew they had to do something with that. We know that 3,000 people got saved that day. And it's continued ever since, every other Easter. You play your song? All right.